If you would, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Mark, chapter 1. Today we begin our study of the book of Mark. And on a personal note, uh, years ago when I decided to preach verse by verse, going through various books, this happened more than 40 years ago, I don't know if Dan and Lonnie will remember, um, I chose to begin this practice with the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark was the first book that I preached through. Um, and now, all these years later, I want to do it again. As is the case, whenever we study a book of the Bible, we need to begin with some background information, which is what we'll do today, and then we will look at the first 13 verses. What is the book or the Gospel of Mark? Perhaps it would be easier to start by saying what it is not. It is not a biography. It is not a formal historical treatise. It's not a history of the life of Jesus. It is intended to be proclamation. Um, Perhaps the closest we could come to it in English would be a sermon. It is a preaching. Uh, Mark is telling us the good news of Jesus Christ. This is seen, if you'll look, at the very first verse of the book. In chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Or we could say the beginning of the preaching of the joyful tidings of Jesus Christ. What follows is quite unusual because it is, in fact, an account. It is a preaching that is oriented around a crisis. And that crisis is, in fact, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, the Messiah. The book of Mark has 16 chapters. Halfway through the book, at the end of chapter 8, we find a definite shift, so much so that we would say the first eight chapters are preparatory, and then the second eight chapters deal with the sufferings of Jesus. In chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi, On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about this. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So everything prior to this, to chapter 8, prepares us for the moment of recognition. Here at the end of chapter 8, people say, you are the Christ. The disciples finally get it. Everything that comes after has to do with his suffering and his death. And in fact, Jesus is the one who then begins to say, listen, the Son of Man is going to have to suffer. These things are what are going to happen. Um, Why does he write his gospel this way? Why is there such emphasis on the death of the Messiah? In truth, we can only guess, and and that could be dangerous. But it does seem clear that Mark, as well as the other gospel writers, are not writing to unbelievers. I think this is a common mistake that people have, that somehow these books were written to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah. That's not the case at all. These are written to believers. They're written to churches who put their faith in Jesus of Nazareth. 
And this, in fact, is to say, this is who you have believed in. These are the things he said. These are the things that he did. It has been suggested that the Gospel of Mark was written to uh, the churches at a time when persecution was just beginning. And people are like, why is this happening to us? We are the people of God. And he's like, here's the story of the Messiah. And he suffered. And why would you think that your lives would be any different? A question comes up at this point. Why are there four Gospels? Why isn't there just one Gospel? You know, just put it all together in one book. Why do we have four different accounts? Uh, I'll suggest some reasons. But if, you know, if nothing else, you know, when something happens and if you have four people observing it, they're going to have four different perspectives. They're, gonna, they're going to emphasize different things. Um, each of these Gospels was written by a different individual. They were written for a different audience, I would suggest. And they had a different purpose. Uh, the testimony of the four Gospels can be seen as following. Matthew presents Jesus as the son of David. The opening verse of Matthew, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. His focus is that Jesus is, in fact, the prophesied Messiah. He is a descendant of David, of the royal household. And Mark, Jesus is the son of man. As I read a moment ago, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And Luke, he is the son of Adam. And if you know the Gospels at all, in Matthew, we have a genealogy showing that Jesus is a descendant of David. But in Luke's genealogy, it goes all the way back to Adam. That in fact, Adam is the first man and Jesus is one of his descendants as are all of us. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is the Son of God. In the familiar verses, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but save the world through him. It has been suggested, and we can think about this and talk about it later. You may remember that when we studied the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, um, Ezekiel has a vision, and he sees four living creatures, okay? Each of the four had the face of a man. On the right side, each had the face of a lion. On the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. And we see this also in the book of Revelation. Uh, the four living creatures, um, face of a lion, face of a man, face of an ox, and that of an eagle. And it's suggested that each one of these faces responds to a particular gospel. Not everyone agrees which goes to which, but I would suggest that Matthew, we have the face of a lion because Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, David. Lion is their symbol. In the book of Mark, which we're going to be studying, it is an ox because Jesus is presented as a servant. In Luke, he's presented as a man, and in John, an eagle. As I said, these are different writers, they have different approaches, they have different audiences. Matthew was written for a Jewish audience, I would suggest, those who are familiar with the Old Testament. And Matthew keeps saying, this was done to fulfill what was written, and his Jewish audience would know what was written. And so they're able to make the one-to-one -one correspondence. Oh, that's what the prophet said, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. 
In Mark, it is suggested, it's written for citizens of the Roman Empire. Some have even said specifically for Roman Christians. Um, they're not that familiar with the Jewish religion or with Jewish culture. And so as we go along, there will be a couple times at least in which Mark will give us an Aramaic term and then he'll explain to his readers, this is what this means. Okay. Um, Mark is also a gospel of action. And people said that the Romans were people of action. They had conquered you know, that part of the world. Um, and we will see Jesus is a person of action who has been given a task. He accomplishes that task. He does what he's supposed to do, a man of action. Luke, on the other hand, almost takes a historical approach. Uh, he opens like as many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that were fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you. Luke was not an eyewitness. By the way, neither was Mark. Luke was not an eyewitness. So what he did was he went around interviewing people. He got their information and then he compiled it together and he wrote what we know as the Gospel of Luke. And the focus in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus was human, that he was truly human. Um, then John, who was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, um, really emphasizes that Jesus, yes, he was human, but he existed before the world did, before the beginning. And John, like the other writers, wants his readers to exercise their faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, let's be clear about something. I want to be clear. I've said there are four writers, four different audiences, one might say different purposes. But in fact, the Gospels were written for everyone. Uh, you can Google this up, by, you can Google this, and somebody has put there, the Gospels were written for, and then all caps, every one. Uh, lest we say, oh, well, Matthew's for the Jews, and I'm not Jewish, so that's not really that important. They, in fact, are written for the church of all time, of all ages, and they are to be of benefit to us. So who were the authors? Well, two eyewitnesses, Matthew and John, were two of the twelve. They were disciples. But two were not eyewitnesses, uh, Mark and uh, Luke. Um, let's talk about Mark, because that's the book we're going to be studying. Who is this guy named Mark? As with the other writers, Mark does not identify himself. He doesn't say, oh, I'm Mark and I'm writing this. Okay? None of the gospel writers do that. Uh, Luke is the easiest one to identify because he also wrote the book of Acts. And then we find at certain points he travels with Paul and he shifts to the first person, you know, we did this, this happened to us. Um, but otherwise, we rely on the tradition of the church to say, okay, Matthew wrote Matthew and Mark wrote Mark and John wrote the Gospel of John. From the second century on, it has been affirmed by the church that Mark was the writer of this book. It was a popular name among Greek-speaking peoples from the time of Caesar Augustus on. Marcus was a name that was uh, popular and common. 
It occurs eight times in the New Testament, uh, four times in the book of Acts, and four time, or one time each in four of the epistles, usually at the end, as uh, the apostle is closing a book, either as a message for Mark or something about Mark is said. Um, in Acts chapter 12 is the first time we have him mentioned. Peter has been arrested. Uh, James, uh, another apostle, had been beheaded. And it seemed likely that that was going to happen to Peter too. But in the middle of the night, an angel came in and helped or opened the gate and let Peter escape. Then Peter came to himself because he's outside and all of a sudden he's like, Did I, am I dreaming? Is this real? Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people are, were anticipating. When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So this man, Mark, is also known as John Mark. Quite unusual, a Jewish first name and a Roman second name. Uh, usually it's the other way around. Uh, back in that, in the first century, you would always put the Roman name first and then, you know, whatever you know, ethnicity you have, you could put that second Later in Acts 12, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they had brought funds down for the poor in Jerusalem, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Then it gets really interesting. As Paul and Barnabas, or Saul at that point, go on their first missionary journey, they go from Antioch, Syria, and they go over uh, to Cyprus which we think is where Barnabas was from originally. Uh, don't want to go into detail, but Barnabas was John Mark's uncle, and that's why he brought them along. Well, at a certain point there on Cyprus, John Mark's like, I'm out of here, I'm going home, and he leaves them. So they continue on their journey, they come back and make a report. Then you have the council in Jerusalem. And then Paul says, listen, we need to go back and check on all those people that we preached to, the churches that were started. And Barnabas like, let's go and let's take John Mark with us. And Paul's like, no, no. He bailed on us before. We're not taking him. And uh, let me read this to you. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. So apparently John Mark was the cause of a split between Barnabas and Paul. Paul went with Silas. Remember Paul and Silas in Philippi in the jail? And Barnabas took John Mark with him. However, it's a wonderful thing about the New Testament. We have a certain degree of closure. There was reconciliation. In one of Paul's last letters, 2 Timothy, which in fact may have been his last letter, he wrote to Timothy, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Like, oh, something has changed, hasn't it? Um, I think John Mark grew up, and there was reconciliation, and it's a wonderful thing. We think, and so we're guessing here, that in chapter 14, we have a mention of John Mark, but not by name. 
It's when Jesus is betrayed by Judas and they come to arrest him in the garden. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. It's been suggested that this was, in fact, John Mark, this unnamed young man who was following. And when the soldiers tried to grab him, they only got his clothes and he ran off naked. There is a key word, excuse me. There's a key word in the book of Mark. And the word is immediately. In Greek, it is euthus. It appears 41 times in the book of Mark. Uh, If you look it up, the word immediately appears, I think, either 82 or 85 times in the whole Bible. So half of them are in this book. Um, It's quite remarkable. There are 678 verses, and there are 41 times that we see the word immediately. By the way, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. This indicates to us that Mark's gospel is one of action. So he does this, immediately he went to do this. And after that, immediately he went to do that. I mean, it's just motion, 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 okay? It is unfortunate, and I don't understand why, that many of the English translations fail to use the word immediately when they should. Um, and again, I, I'm just not sure why they do this. I will point out where the NIV, for example, doesn't have immediately, uh, so that you will know that, in fact, it is there, okay? So, let's begin our study of the book of Mark. Verses 1 through 13 are the prologue, okay? This is the introduction. And then beginning in verse number 14, Lord willing, next week, we jump right into it. But in a real sense, he jumps into it right at the beginning. Look at verse number 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have four Gospels, they're all talking about Jesus, but they all start in a different way. They have a different point of departure. Um, Matthew begins with the genealogy, and then the conception, the birth, the naming of Jesus. You will call his name Jesus, save his people from their sins. Luke begins by telling the story of John the Baptist. Zacharias is in the temple, uh, and then Gabriel appears to Mary, Uh, John the Baptist is born. I mean, all that happens before we actually get to the birth of Jesus. John begins before the beginning. Jesus existed from all eternity. He came, and in very wonderful language, Jesus came and pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. And then he talks about John the Baptist. Uh, Well, Mark jumps right in, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just to remind you, we saw this when we began our series on uh, kingdom worldview. The story of the Roman Empire. Uh, Julius Caesar is assassinated in 44 BC. It's followed by a decade of civil war. Various factions are fighting for control. You have Mark Antony and Cleopatra. You have Brutus and Cassius. You have Octavian, who is Julius's, Julius Caesar's adopted son. And 10 years later, uh, Octavian comes out on top. And he is now going to be the emperor, Caesar Augustus. He took that name, that's rather August, the great one. Um, But he also took the title Dewi Filius, that is the divine son or the son of God. 
In 31 BC, a letter was sent out to all the parts of the empire just to let them know there's a new sheriff in town, so to speak. And this is what it said. The beginning of the word of glad tidings, or the beginning of the gospel, that have come to all men through the coming of God to rescue the world, repent and believe. You know, if you didn't know better, you'd swear this is from the Bible. But in fact, this is the language that was used by Caesar Augustus. It is a public announcement that something has happened. Okay? The good news is we now have an emperor. His name is Caesar Augustus. The empire has arrived. We have a kingdom. The kingdom has come. And we have a king, an emperor. And he is going to save us. He's going to save the world. Mark is telling his readers basically the same thing about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That the coming of Jesus is significant, and he uses not a Christian term, now we think of it as a Christian term, gospel, but in fact was a very political term at that time. That in fact there is good news that Jesus Christ has come into the world. A part of his significance is seen in the fact that there is someone who comes ahead of him to announce. You know, you know, we have technology today, so you can just text or shoot an email or messenger or whatever to say someone's coming. And back then, they didn't have that. So you'd actually send someone ahead of you to say, listen, the great one is coming. The emperor is coming. The king is coming. You need to prepare yourselves uh, for this great event. And this is what we find in verses 2 through 8. So if you would look as I read this. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Spirit. This is the second verse in verse number two, and Mark has jumped right in. Quoting from the Old Testament, he quotes from the book of Isaiah chapter 40, but he only quotes a very small part of it. And if I had been Mark's editor, I would have said, listen, you you need to sort of flesh this out a bit. This is from Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. In other words, the king is coming, the hills are going to be made low, the valleys are going to be raised up, it's going to be flat. Okay? There are not going to be any obstacles for the coming, this procession of the king that is coming to his people. Why doesn't Mark quote more of the Isaiah passage? I'll suggest two reasons. First of all, his book is noted for its brevity. Okay? He wasn't writing a long gospel. He was keeping it short. But secondly, I would suggest that his readers could fill in the rest. They know the book of Isaiah. 
And so when he quotes this, they're like, oh yeah, in their minds or out loud, they would be able to in fact uh, speak the rest of it. I say this, Tom uh, lent me a series of lectures on uh, beauty. And the woman speaking said that, you know, when Jesus is on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the beginning of Psalm 22. And the people who heard them in their minds would be able to say the rest of the psalm. They were familiar with it. I would suggest the same is true here for Mark. He quotes Isaiah 40 and people are like, oh yeah, and it continues like this. And then they come back to what he's talking about, and that is, in fact, John the Baptist. Some might say, uh, Damon, you said that this book might have been written for Romans, and then why does he quote from an Old Testament prophet? That, that doesn't seem to make sense. Oh, wait a minute. The early Christians, the scripture they had was the Old Testament. So it didn't matter if you were a Gentile or a Jew, you would know the Old Testament because that's what the New Testament preachers, the apostles, that's what they preach from. And they certainly would be familiar with Isaiah chapter 40. So Jesus is coming, and we know this, this is a great event because he has someone coming before him. Unless we get puffed up and say, yes, this, Jesus is the one, you know, here comes John the Baptist. Consider the following. First of all, John was out in the desert. Now, in, in some translations, in the, I think ESV and the King James, it has the word wilderness. It appears four times in these, in these verses. What's up with that? I mean, if I'm going to announce the coming of a great personage, I'm not going to go out in the wilderness. I'm not going to go out in the desert. In fact, if you know the geography, you have to cross the Jordan River to get out to the desert. What, what's, what's going on? Um, well, wilderness is very prominent in Old Testament stories, particularly that of Israel coming out of Egypt and spending 40 years in the wilderness. So for his listeners, those who were listening to John, this would make a lot of sense. Also consider that his way of announcing was really unique, I would say, to say the least. The king is coming, okay, you all, you all need to confess your sins and get baptized. Jump in the Jordan River here with me and I'm going to baptize you. It's like, really, this is how you announce the coming of a king? Um, the announcement of Augustus did, in fact, mention repentance. Change your thinking. I'm the new emperor. Okay? Rome hadn't had an emperor up to that point. Now he is the emperor, so that requires a change of thinking. But John also requires a physical act. Demonstrate that, in fact, you have repented by being baptized. And then consider... Okay, it would really be cool if somebody would walk ahead of me and announce, here comes Damon. Damon's coming. Yeah. Um, dressed in camel hair with a leather belt, and he eats locusts and wild honey. I'm like, yeah, just... I don't need you to announce me. This is certainly not someone you would expect to be the one to announce the coming of the Son of God into the world. But I think perhaps more than anything, what is amazing here is that John knew his place in true humility. After me will come one more powerful than I, 
the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. You know, to untie someone's shoes even today, usually you have to get down on your knees to do that. Um, but imagine that somebody's wearing sandals and they're walking around and it's dusty and their feet are probably dirty. And to do that, it's like, well, I'm, what do you think? I'm a slave. You, I'm a servant. I'm going to get down and untie your sandals. I mean, you're a grown man. For goodness sake. You know, just do it yourself. No, it is an act of humility to do that. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. That's what a slave or a servant would do. I, yeah, I'm, I'm not worthy to do that. I'm baptizing you with water in preparation, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that's it. Next, next verse, verse number nine, we have the baptism of Jesus. Look, if you would, verses 9, 10, and 11. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As, John, as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven I came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. By the way, this is the first immediately, and the NIV doesn't have it. Um, and when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Okay. So it's the first time of the 41 times that we see immediately in this book. Now, if you know the Gospels at all, you'll remember that when Jesus went to John to be baptized, John's like, you should baptize me. I shouldn't baptize. Doesn't come up at all. Doesn't come up at all. Uh, John is, this is the prologue. He wants to get to the good stuff, if you wish. And, and so he just tells, so a matter of fact, Jesus was baptized. And then there are three things that happen. Heaven was torn open. It didn't just open, it was torn open. The spirit descended like the form of a dove. And then a voice from heaven said, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. By the way, here we have the Trinity. We have the Son being baptized, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming on him, and the Father saying, you are my Son. Then, verse number 12. At once, or immediately, this is the second time we see it, the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, the wild animals, and angels attended him. Um, Jesus humbled himself to be baptized by John and then he was humbled and obedient to the spirit the spirit drove him into the wilderness and again the English translation here is, is a bit weak um, that the spirit sent him out into the desert no the spirit drove him into the desert and again we have desert four times in these verses we have the word desert or wilderness And that's all he says about it. Doesn't give us any details. We know from Matthew there were three particular temptations. Um, we know that Satan came to him. No, we're simply told, Mark tells us, that he went out into the desert and there he was tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals. No other human beings around. It's out him. He's out there with the wild creatures and... Apparently, it is a difficult time. We're not told that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. We have to read Matthew to find that out. It's just very 
you know, cut to the chase. He went, the spirit drove him to the wilderness. He was tempted, and he was there alone with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Why doesn't Mark tell us this? Why doesn't he give us the details? Um, the short answer is, I have no idea. I don't know. Um, Mark wrote in a very abbreviated style. As we'll see, he goes from scene to scene to scene to scene. I mean, it's just, it's just, at a certain point you feel like saying, Mark, will you please slow down? Because he, he just, he's, he's rushing through this. But what he is doing is he wants to tell the story of Jesus to those who are the people of Jesus. One of the things I've not mentioned yet about the Gospel of Mark, he records more miracles than the other three Gospels. More than the other Gospels, he focuses on the miracles of Jesus. But then by the time we get to the end of chapter 8, we are now headed toward Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he will be put to death. So, we've begun our study in the book of Mark. We have a Marcus among us. Marcus was a name at that time used by Greek-speaking people. His name was John Mark, or Johannan Marcus, Jewish name, Roman name. And he wrote this down so that those who are the people of God would know the story of Jesus. I would argue that they did know the story of Jesus already um, by oral tradition. And people sort of freak out about oral tradition. People used to have better memories than we do now. I don't know if you've noticed that, but um, if I can write something down or if I can record it somewhere, I, I, it's gone from my mind because I know it's somewhere else. People didn't have that, and they, so they did remember. But Mark writes these things down for those who are the people of God. In this prologue, if we could summarize it in one word, what would that word be? This is something I do with my students occasionally. I give them a reading assignment and I say, okay, summarize the reading in two words or three words or one word. How would you summarize the first 13 verses in one word? The word would be obedience. Obedience. Because Isaiah had said, someone is coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And John is that person. And again, I don't think it was John's choice like, yeah, I think I want to go live in the desert like a crazy man and eat locusts and wild honey. He was obedient. God gave him a message, gave him a calling, and he followed. And then when we look at Jesus, he is the picture of obedience. He's baptized by John. Why would he need to be baptized by John? He doesn't have to repent of any sins. He's not a sinner. He is obedient. And the father says, this is my son. I love him. He's my son. And then the spirit says, okay, we're going to the desert. We're going to the wilderness. He is obedient. Before Jesus begins his ministry, I would say of authority, he begins with obedience. He begins with humility. He obeys the Father. He obeys the Spirit. He does what he's told to do, as did John. We need to remember that, because beginning next week, the Lord willing, uh, it's, 
it's going to sort of be the way John or Mark writes, uh, pedal to the metal. I mean, he's just going to, we're going to fly through, and he's doing these things left and right, commanding demons to come out, healing people, doing all these things. And we may forget the story starts with him being obedient, not with him giving commands, but with him being obedient. There's a lesson for us to learn there. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, for the Gospels, and for the Gospel of Mark as we begin to study it. May we be humble as we study it. May you open our hearts to receive your truth, to see in the Lord Jesus, the one who is the Lord, the picture of obedience a picture of humility. We look forward to studying this book together. May you guide us in what we do. We remember our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and Russia. If we're not careful, we will think only in terms of political terms, conflict between one nation and another but we have brothers and sisters in both countries. Keep them safe, we pray. Comfort them, encourage them. May they not be afraid. May they not be governed by fear. May each one of us trust you as we should. Again, on this day, we remember Zaldi. It's been 10 years since you took him from us. We pray for those that have been left behind, that you would draw them to yourself. For myself, I give thanks for the 46 years you've given me here, for Dan and Lonnie and how they've stood by me. I thank you for your love and for theirs, your faithfulness and theirs as well. Thank you for bringing us together. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.